Hi Jess, how are you? <laughs> good, good things. Um, yeah, calling in from Thailand. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Um, so today we're doing another Ask Me Anything. Uh, we can have any topic and I'll try to be good about it and answer and stay on point and not go off on tangents. It's going to start time around things. So yeah, is there anything you want to talk about? Yeah, I thought springboarding off your latest blog article, I thought we could dive into cognitive biases. And yeah. then I was kind of curious, actually, how you use journaling to uncover your own cognitive biases. Um, so, yeah, I think mean, the first step is that there are all these cognitive biases and they're kind of like hardwired into your base code or into your sort of source code. Um, and so if you're aware of them, like confirmation bias, you know, Dunning-Kruger, the two ones that I was talking about there, which all the time come up, like almost every day probably, um, then you have an ability to hopefully counter for them um, and then you can attempt to hopefully be somewhat unbiased. Um, but if you're not aware of them, then you're kind of unwittingly biased, um, which isn't good, because um, I think all else equal, they'll run like a wrecking ball and, and you know mess up you know, your ability to hopefully make high quality decisions. So I think it's better to have um, an awareness of these things and to try to have them sort of, you know, talk about like unconscious incompetence, conscious competence, um, conscious, in, sorry, unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, conscious competence, and then unconscious competence. And so that's kind of like setting a new habit is going through that loop. And so I think you can move them from being unconsciously biased to then being unconsciously, hopefully aware of them and attempting to be unbiased. I don't know if you can ever be fully unbiased, but you can hopefully be a lot better than being unaware of these things. So yeah, have you thought about this at all or where's your head on that one? Oh, I have, like, I think I was thinking about it in the space of sort of self-awareness and how you can, yeah, I guess, use the concept to judge whether or not you're being biased in, I know, maybe your interpretation of something that's kind of hard to measure, like social interactions. It's like, how do you kind of, how do you, how do you detect those biases and social interactions and how do you make sure you're not being too harsh or too generous with yourself? Yeah, so at work, we'll often do post-game analysis. So immediately after a meeting or something, or at the end of it, you kind of try to replay certain things and see if they've been different ways. Like, were you, for instance, listening to what someone said or you didn't understand? And is that because you had sort of missed it or were ignoring it? Or was it because perhaps they didn't put things forward in a way that was easy to understand? Um, but sort of one thing from journaling, so I have multiple different approaches to journaling. Um, and one of them is like my work modus operandi one. Um, and so I would try to replay key, um, you know, events during the day um so even sometimes it's when i was thinking like you were problem solving and you kind of got off on a mega tangent or you kind of got really lost or something um and then you replay it uh, and so sometimes you can have awareness real time but often that's very difficult um but if you spend time trying to so they say um you know um learn from your experiences you learn from reflecting on your experiences john dewey um so you should spend proactive time reflecting i think um and if you just prompt yourself to reflect then you can um so i have like a work one and i try to go through a couple things a day and then also like a personal one um which is kind of i suppose um, a lot of because work is a lot of large part of my life um but you, you can replay things um you know um you know on, on a weekend and so some of it's like how do they act logically one lens how do they act emotionally and you can i know that they're kind of overlap but you're kind of trying to look at it from different perspectives and how did that other person act logically and how did that person act emotionally and sometimes you see that your logic is off, like you kind of, you know, there's like a logic tree often you can kind of try to explain 
many ways that you're thinking and you're like, oh my God, like I totally messed the logic tree up. Or other times you did get a bit emotional for whatever reason. Um, and they, emotions can be good. It's not like saying you should try to be an emotionless automaton, but you know, emotions can be helpful or harmful. Just like logic can be helpful or harmful. And trying to understand, say your lens, your, your perspective and say others, I've found can be quite, you know, enlightening. Yeah, that makes sense. Can you break down with emotions? Like, yeah, how do you use those as a, a navigation system? Like, how do you play with emotions as a compass? Emotions are just signals, they say. Like, I am not frustrated. I am experiencing frustration or whatever. But sometimes you actually can lean into the emotion. So you're not just trying to observe your emotions or observe your thoughts. You can be the thoughts. You can be the emotions. And so one of the things I think about um, meditation, it's trying to stop whatever's going on in your mind and then you become aware of like your subconscious thoughts or your emotions and you can kind of see what you were feeling. So if you concentrate on your breath and you do it for 10 minutes, by the end, if you've done it well, you've let go of any thoughts and you've let go of any emotions and you can actually realize what you've let go of. But often when you're in the middle of them, you can't see what they are. Um, and so one part of meditation to me is actually building your ability to have awareness, to see these signals. So you kind of, increase the fidelity of the signals that you can get um and so the more signals you have hopefully the better you can understand what the hell's going on at that time and then you can use those signals now what do they mean well that's the next part or what what caused this emotion to happen and sometimes the emotion leads to a thought sometimes a thought leads to emotion you know so they're kind of unidirectional or whatever and also this is obviously an oversimplification because it's not just a big mess going on or something but to me, you can become more aware. And so in they talk about like emotional intelligence, one of them is self-awareness, you know, another one's self-regulation, there's another one's awareness of others. And so I, I find just like, I don't know, if you were whatever, a, a professional sports person, you will likely do a review of the game after and you can see, like some games, you can see the emotions of people really easily, like tennis or something, like someone getting frustrated and whatever else it is. Like what kick that off? And then you see people like Federer who might momentarily get you know, emotional or whatever, and then gets it back under control. And you see other people like Kyrgios mm -hmm. is going all well and then like loses it and never gets it back under control the whole game. And with, he was playing well and then it's like downhill from that point. Um, so I think that is signals. What the signals say is dependent each time. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And what about like, if you just say you've got a conversation that you want to have with someone and you've been trying to kind of mentally prepare for that conversation, like in the moment, if you instinctively feel like saying something else, are you more likely to lean into that instinct and go with the emotion? Or do you try and like pull yourself back in and stick with the script because you logic it out in the first place? It depends. Like I suppose whatever, there was a time 15 years ago where I never did any sort of preparing before a meeting or preparing for a conversation. So uh, maybe like I don't know, early days, you're, you're like 20 or whatever, you're in a romantic relationship and you might be thinking maybe you shouldn't be in that romantic relationship. And so you've spent a lot of time ruminating in your head or whatever, but then you also, I would think about what I wanted to say. Um, and I'd often write like a dot point plan. Like I wouldn't read out dot points normally, but I'd think about it beforehand and then have this, um, but they say planning is essential, plans are useless. Um, <laughs> so no plans of ours first contact. Um, and so if things go according to your plan, you're doing much better than my life because the vast majority of time, <laughs> I think planning is helpful but you, you cannot just normally strictly, uh, you know, stick to the plan because the plan is pretty quickly not not relevant to what the hell's going on. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly right. Like I, I sort of 
because it's something that I can never kind of land on because yeah, if I have something that I've planned to say, sometimes I'll be saying that thing. And then I realize in that moment, I'm not even paying attention to the other person's social cues because I'm yeah. stuck in my plan. But then conversely, it's like, if I don't have a plan and I go with the emotions, sometimes I can express what I'm feeling in the present, but that's perhaps not what I feel holistically. And then I also feel that that expression kind of taints the situation or the conversation. So I'm never sure in that moment, like what to do. I don't know if you can know what to do, like life for better or worse, <laughs> most of the time, isn't that you know direct? And that's actually, I think, beautiful. Like it is a journey. There isn't normally a destination involved. Um, and so I don't know, each company will have different things, but like at Ed Rollo, you, I don't, I'm never without my laptop ever. And in, unless it's like a big meeting, you know, where you're like, I don't know, all hands meeting. If you're in a meeting with like, say four people, everyone has their laptops open at the same time. You know, normally someone's presenting or you've got like a spreadsheet open and you're building some sort of logic path in a spreadsheet. So you can try to understand what people are saying. You're collecting the different things people have said and finding out where to join them, not just a bunch of random pieces that are thrown out that nobody knows what they were and you've forgotten what someone was said five minutes ago. But even inside of that as well, um, you have Slack open normally, um, which is instant messaging for work for those who don't have. And you Slack people like in the meetings, like like live. So it's something you want to say, but you don't think necessarily everyone should hear. And sometimes that's like, Duncan, you've missed this point that someone said or some, you know, whatever else it is. And so to me, um, I find that that's a better, it's like a higher bandwidth way to communicate if you're able to put things down and visualize certain stuff and also not just have to have everyone hear everything you say. Um, so yeah, um, I suppose that's from a work perspective. Um, outside of work, definitely I'm not having a laptop everywhere <laughs> and, and whatever else it is. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. What, what do you do though in the context of like a meeting? I can imagine my mum. So my mum's very sweet and very empathetic. So if someone had to talk about something that went wrong at work, I think that my mum would be likely to respond with maybe sharing something that also went wrong for her. And she'd be doing that with almost the subconscious intention of making that person feel better. Like how much consideration do you give towards like the why and the kind of subconscious underpinning when you're analyzing what people are saying and for what purpose? Well, yeah, I mean, there are different jobs to be done that different meetings have. Um, so some of them, it is just, okay, you're here, the consciously complaining, I think, is a thing, which uh, I suppose is none name, it's venting. Um, so sometimes venting is negative sum, sometimes it's positive sum. And I think, you know, they talk about people that have like a best friend at work, have much more enjoyment, productivity, longevity at work. Um, and so sometimes if it's someone who's like, you've got a very close relationship at work, they just need to vent about something. And so you don't even need to really say anything. You're just like, okay, the, the job to be done here is conscious complaining, and that can be done in a positive, healthy way, or it can be done in a, you know, character assassination, getting worked up unnecessarily sort of way. Um, and so that'd be one sort of type. So someone needs to listen, just listen, right? Other times it's in like an understanding mode versus say decision-making mode. Um, so I often talk about like understanding mode versus defense mode. Um, and often people naturally, if, if you're saying something different to their idea or proposal, they go into defense mode as opposed to understanding what you're trying to say mode and so normally it's try to understand and then it's confirm what you have understood so don't just assume well i'm in understanding mode therefore i'm understanding it's like okay if it's if it's right like, is what you're saying this and just want to confirm that i understand what you're saying right so like conscious complaining understanding mode 
but then you also need to do like problem solving mode. So once you've understood, okay, now we're moving into trying to see if we can make progress towards this thing, or whatever. Um, and then other ones, the decision's been made um, and you do want to listen, um, but ultimately we are not necessarily going to be able to change course here. So that's that whole disagree but commit stuff, which I think was, I think it came out of all this. I think I found out about it from Bezos and Amazon. Um, and so, um, I don't know, different meetings, different jobs to be done. So you should be different. Um, the old saying, I contain multitudes. So you shouldn't just have the one mode all times. So you should have different modes. You gotta try to figure out which mode is optimal for whichever circumstance and then to try to be that mode. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. And then like in the context of a meeting, if you're listening to other people, I suppose you're kind of juggling an awareness of which mode they're in. But then do you also have like kind of cognitive biases tacked onto each person, almost in the way that Ray Dalio has kind of each person's skills? Like do each of your staff or the people that you work with, yeah, have bias tendencies? And then do you counter what they're saying with those in mind? Yeah, I mean, just from a very sort of one lens thing, so everything you're doing at work, I say, is either building a unit of credibility or burning a unit of credibility. Um, and so some people have built a lot of credibility. And so you have positive sentiment override for what they're saying. So if it doesn't make sense, you're like, okay, well, that's probably because I don't understand. Um, and I need to think about what's going on here. And some people have negative sentiment override. They've not done a good job. And so their past, you know, score sheet is, is not good. And so it doesn't make sense. And you're like, another example of somebody not making sense or whatever else it is. And so for better or worse, you do have a reputation um, or your cumulative amount of credibility. Um, and I think you should be very conscious in trying to build credibility. It's not something that, I mean, it, it, whether you like it or not, that's what's going on. And so from my perspective, you should be conscious about this. And so one of those things that's done in Kruger, like you've hopefully got domain expertise in some areas, but unlikely every area. And if somebody has more domain expertise than you in a certain area, then you should be weighting their credibility higher for this. And so just because, I don't know, somebody has had, let's say, not good input in certain areas, that doesn't mean that they're, this might be because they've got low domain expertise in that area, right? Um, and that doesn't mean that all areas that they do are bad or something. And so you should try to be conscious about how you're thinking and why someone else is thinking and to calibrate those things into how you're you know, processing whatever's going on at that moment. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense, actually. That's interesting. How, <laughs> how do you see like, the Dunning-Kruger effect play out like at work? Is it something that it's quite easy for you to kind of identify and eradicate? Or eradicate sounds strong, but... <laughs> I think hopefully over time you become more aware of things to take into account that hopefully allow you to make, on average, better quality decisions or better quality interactions than you had before. And so I think having a, an awareness of Dunning-Kruger and trying to calibrate where you are on that versus other people is really important. Sometimes, the, you know, I think if you're doing a startup, presumably you're doing something new. So there's certain areas where nobody is like a super expert, like, you know, the, the most, you know, domain expert, someone is a novice, but there are other areas where someone's like an expert. Um, and so like, I, I wouldn't be talking to the engineers about how to structure the database in a way that I think makes sense because I'm like, my domain expertise is novice and there's this expert. And I just don't know if I have anything really to add there. Um, but if you're thinking about, I don't know, content quality and how we should hopefully be able to do this at a higher level than others, I think I've got relatively strong domain expertise there. And that doesn't mean others can't have input. Ideally, you know, almost all interactions be positive sum. And so a novice can be talking to an expert and you can get a better outcome than if the expert was just by themselves or the novice was just by themselves. So it doesn't mean that you need to have somebody that has 
the same level of expertise in a domain for you to be able to have a positive some conversation. Um, but you kind of try to calibrate those things so that you are taking them into account. If you treat everyone exactly the same every single time, including yourself, that probably is going to give you a worse outcome than if you try to calibrate to the appropriate way for each circumstance. Yeah, okay. And in terms of like leveling up skills, like if you've got someone who's a novice in one area, do you try and give them instructions about the specific areas that you want them to level up in? Or do you kind of let them guide that process themselves? Or what do you do to kind of grow your team? I mean, there's different areas. Like often in, in education, they talk about knowledge levels and skill levels. And there's a sort of, they'll, they'll dissociate the two. There's overlap between them. So it's not necessarily a fair, you know, it might be a false dichotomy. But I think we are trying to proactively level up our knowledge and proactively level up our skills. Um, and, you know, that's one of the core reasons why I write the blogs, because to me, they are learnings to myself. So almost always, I didn't know this at the start of it. I had like some sort of problem and then I'll try to figure out a solution. I might have like a level five solution. I'm going to level up to level six. Sometimes I'm level zero and I want to get to level one. And so these are things that are meant to help people level up, but others, people, so, um, in people's weekly uh, emails, so they'll write a learning, uh, and the learning has no, I think it's four prompts at the moment, um, to give you a kind of guidance about where to go, and you can learn from others. So you can learn your, from yourself, hopefully, but you can also learn from others. You don't have to do everything yourself, and I don't care how I get better, just that I get better. Um, so maximal improvements is better than, you know, only, you know, invented here, we're, we're only doing that or whatever, you know. So yeah, um, you can crystallize your learnings, and make them so that they are hopefully understandable by others and repeatable. And so, you know, we don't have to reinvent science from scratch. You know, Newton, if I have seen further, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants. Well, if you're thinking about how to interact and to problem solve, you can stand on the shoulders of those who have come before and hopefully get faster, you know, improve, level up faster than it would be if you were just doing it all yourself. Mm. And actually, can you go back to the email piece? Because I really like that. Like, what is the instruction that you give your team in terms of creating those emails? Um, the main point is that you should spend some time reflecting on your experiences, not just your experiences. And if you are able to reflect well, you can synthesize it into something really, really short. Um, it's meant to be 100 words max, but, you know, that's kind of like it varies around whatever. Not like we don't want sort of, you know, orders of bunches like one word, 10 words, 100 words, 1,000 words, 10,000 words. So it's meant to be kind of in that 100 sort of or low 100 sort of thing. And that's relatively fast to make. But also Einstein, you know, the highest level of intelligence is simplicity. Um, so it's like smart, intelligent, genius, simple or whatever. I've forgotten his taxonomy. And so normally they say simplicity is complexity solved. Um, and the more simple that you can explain something, normally the more you understand it. and But also the more that others can understand it as well. And so the act of writing a learning a week means you get better at writing learnings, means you get better at summarizing or synthesizing or simplifying. Um, and so if you do that each week, hopefully a year later, you're way, you know, you're leveled up way more and your ability to write way to level up has leveled up as well. So it's kind of, you know, two orders of magnitude or whatever, always like, you know, the, the second derivative of these things is strong. All right, that's interesting. So if I wanted to try and do this, would the instruction be that, I, I shouldn't just be reflecting on one experience that I've had. I'd have to scaffold that alongside somebody else's framework or what specific kind of formula would you would you instruct me to take into this task? It's not so much because I, I think it can be anything. It's just once a week, you should be uh, even more. But this is not about necessarily the piece of work you delivered. It's about working, you know, and how you go about things. So it's just once a week, write something that is a learning that you have had um, and 
hopefully, you know, if you're working in the same workplace, then it's highly likely that that learning is relevant to other people as well. So it's more just make time and space. And from my side, there's a hundred words kind of the goal or hundreds. Um, and the kind of upper limit normally is like half an hour of time, but you know, the shorter, the better. If you can get something written well in five minutes, cool. Don't just like, oh, now I've got like, extra time set aside. I'm just gonna like elaborate or something. And so it's, it's like doing a unit of time and a unit of time normally done well is defined by a unit of progress. So a unit of work where a unit of progress happened isn't a well-sized unit of work, right? And so you should be spending some time on metacognition or thinking about thinking each week. And that is the goal of these learnings. And then how do I know if it's good? You can't. Um, I don't think so, so some things you can measure, like a maths problem, you know, has one answer and you've got yeah. it right or wrong. Um, but English, you know, there isn't, you know, an essay, uh, one way to get a 10 and 10 essay as an example. And so for these things, I suppose the main thing is that over time, the quality of them is improving. So the amount of time required should decline and the amount of quality should increase over time. Um, and to me, it's like, well, you could do it once a day. I think that's probably too much. You can do it every single time you've had a meeting, you know. Um, and so to me, we don't do post-game analysis every meeting. Um, we just, you know, I don't know when it makes sense. It should be more than zero. It shouldn't be 100% of the time because then you just have meetings about meetings, right? Um, and so to me, a general rule of thumb is 90% of the time execution, 10% of the time reflecting. Um, and then if you spend a year, are you 10% better because of this reflecting time? I was going to argue way more. So let's say you're 50% better, then that was a good use of time. It was ROI positive. So you're normally trying to figure out if you've spent your time well. So another thing in the weekly emails is you should try to write like, what's your highest ROI activity for that week and what's your lowest ROI activity? And as your awareness of what was high ROI, return on investment and low ROI goes up, you can hopefully allocate your time better. So, you know, most people's weeks, there's much of it that's like, I don't know, unplanned or you can't foresee. But if your awareness, you spend time to write this down, then you hopefully become increasingly aware of ROI and you can thereby allocate to the higher ROI things and away from the low ROI things. Yeah. Okay. What if someone what if someone came up to you and they're like, well, my ROI, I'm best when I'm in meetings and giving my opinion, blah, 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 blah. And that was like their interpretation of their own behavior. Would you accept that as reasonable or would you ask them to kind of go back and think about other areas that they should try and strengthen because it feels like they've kind of got a tendency towards what's easy or how do you kind of deal with biases in that space? People are, does that make sense? Like kind of going down yeah, almost I mean, the lazy path. <laughs> like almost all jobs, and there's certainly every job I've ever had, there are bits that I don't like um, and there are mm. bits that I do like and the portion of like to dislike varies, you know. Um, so you, you just need to do like, to me, I say we are net progress deliverers, we're not firefighters on things. It's like outside of work um you should be spending a lot of time relaxing and recharging you should be spending time doing things that you you want to do inside of work ideally you are spending time delivering max amount of progress towards our mission which is improving education and you know you're not doing that all day every day and so to me i'm less feeling that we should be having uh you know oh well you don't feel like it you know that's fine you know you don't have to go and catch up with your friend on friday or something if you don't feel like it but we have to get this thing done and so <laughs> that means that you know, they say eat your frogs in the morning for that book. You know, normally people's energy levels are higher in the morning. And so you do the hard tasks in the morning. There's another book, Deep Work by Cal Newport. Um, and we used to try to have no meetings in the morning. So that's your time set aside to block out when you can do the hard things and then meetings in the afternoon or whatever. Um, but that becomes difficult because when the, the bigger a company gets, the more people have stuff on. And I suppose probably the more senior you are, the more time you're in meetings, then the, the less, the more junior you are, I suppose. Um, and so 
you've got to balance your energy um, and you've got to try to do these things, but also you've just got to get stuff done. And so if there's only one time when you can get these 10 people to, together and that happens to be 9 a.m. in the morning, then that's when it is. Um, but all else equal, if I can, I try to have the meetings in the afternoon, not in the morning, um, so that we have the time to get on the stuff. Um, and so if you've got a three-hour piece of work, don't you've got one hour set aside, don't do it in the one hour. But if you never have... Um, you know, three hours free in your calendar any time in the week, then your week's probably not running very well. Um, so one of the things I used to look at, because we have timesheets and these are a reflection on how you spend your time, not a way to have Big Brother Orwellian, you know, control, um, is to look at people and say, look, what's your biggest blocks of time? Okay, you have got this. You need to try to rearrange your calendar to have large blocks of time. Because if you've got a three-hour piece of work and you only get one hour, it normally doesn't take three hours. It might take five one-hour blocks because you, you don't start where you finished off. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, you, you try to size the amount of work you've got to the amount of time you have, um, and that's better than just jamming stuff where it doesn't fit. Yeah, the, the time blocking thing's interesting. Like, if you've got a task, like, how many of your tasks do you think that you actually know how long they take if they're kind of big picture strategy tasks? Like, how, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this other one is like, I forgot what that thing, maybe it's Campbell's Law, it's one of those laws. Um, work expands to fill the time allocated to it. And so if you give someone one day, they'll get you something, you give them one week, they'll get you something, give them one month, they'll get you something. And so normally the largest block of time that I'll allocate to anything is like four hours and then I'll stop. But then I kind of need to change anyway because you're kind of finding that, you know, you sort of think that. So there's like productive task switching and unproductive task switching. I think for a while it's like any task switching is unproductive. Um, so you should never do it. And I'm like, no, well, if you're literally beating your head against a wall and you're making no progress, you should probably task switch but you shouldn't involuntarily task switch. So now I refer to it as voluntary task switching and involuntary task switching. Not all task switching is bad and all, you know, and you know, so to me, you've got to try to figure things out. And so if it's a really big project, so let's just say there's like one hour projects, 10 hour projects, 100 hour projects, 1000 hour projects. If it's a 100 hour project, I won't go to someone, hey, see you in 100 hours or something. I'll be like, hey, well, the maximum is kind of, you know, one day is normally eight hours, right? So it's like eight hours, then we'll check in and see where the hell you're up to yeah. um, and have a discussion because you kind of figure out the path where you're going and you need to adjust course normally because whilst you have a plan about where you're going at the beginning, almost never, unless you've done it before. So some tasks, this is oversimplification. You've done it before, you know where to get to and other ones you don't know what to do. So I'm talking about the ones you don't know what to do. Um, if, if it is something you know exactly what to do, then you don't need to check in, you know, uh, you know, sort of, uh, on, on where things are up to and checking it's not the right way of looking at it it's it's helping so let's just see what we're up to and so let's just see if we think we should adjust the course or not and almost always you're adjusting the course sometimes only a 10 percent adjustment sometimes you find that you're going exactly the wrong direction so you need 180 and other times you're like what the hell are we doing this for we shouldn't be doing it at all so it's zero you know we should stop this um now hopefully that doesn't happen very often but it does happen um and to me you know it's the height of stupidity to continue on doing things you shouldn't do or what they refer to as achieving failure you got there but there was no point you got there and you had at the end achieved failure um so we do not want to achieve failure obviously we want to achieve success and so you need to make sure that where you're getting to is somewhere that it's worth getting to hmm. kind of reminds me of like ivy climbing up a wall like it sort of just needs those like touch points to keep going in its journey um yeah, yeah. What, do you, what do you recommend for people that are working alone? I know we've kind of touched on this before, but yeah. how do you think they should handle this? I um, So there are some single-player games. Um, like I know an academic at university, a teacher can be quite single-player. Now, some schools, it is multiplayer. You are working as part of departments, but in some schools, it's each teacher to their own. Um, I haven't really worked 
in many single player game spaces. So I don't know if I have much good advice for these people. Um, I do, you know, I suppose when we were all in lockdown and you were working remotely and other stuff, to me, um, you need to set breaks uh, and you need to set things. So as an example, there's a certain kind of email, which is consumption email, and there's a certain kind of email where you need to write stuff. Consumption email for me is difficult to do at a computer uh, because I'm like, I could be doing things. So they're like, oh, okay, well, you're going to work till 10.30 and then you're going to go for a 20-minute walk. And then in that time, you go, you might have like five minutes just walking and like, you know, looking at nature and listening to the sounds of the city or whatever. And then 15 minutes of punching email um, of a certain kind and, and that fits that, that space. So certain things are easy to do in certain circumstances. Um, and so another version of that is like, I used to have an electric skateboard, I used to skateboard to work. Um, now I public transport because it's a type of time my trip commutes not very long, like 25 minutes, um, is really, really conducive to a certain kind of work like mainly consumption email or very small response. Like, yep, I agree, or whatever else it is. That um, you don't have to like write some large thing. Uh, and so, try to fit the types of work to the types of time, and then try to set up different things. Um, and so, yeah, um, you, you can find things to do, uh, and, and then you balance like high cognitive load and low cognitive load tasks. So you got a high cognitive load task, and you know you're drained, you need a break. Well, then don't have a break and start another high cognitive load task. Let's do a low cognitive load task. So it might be an hour of high cognitive load task, 15 minutes of low cognitive load task, an hour of high cognitive load task, 15 minutes of low cognitive load task. And the other one I talk about is that mental chocolate. Uh, mental chocolate is things that no matter what your energy levels are, you really want to do. So there are certain things each week that I am like, oh my God, that is so interesting. I can't wait to do this. So you know that no matter what your energy levels are at, you'll be interested to do this. So you save them up. You don't do them first. And so then you're like, it's kind of like a reward to yourself or mental chocolate. Yeah. Um, so I would try to, have you know, three buckets, high cognitive load, low cognitive load, and mental chocolate. And you then use those different types of time with your day to manage your energy. Um, so you know, like, it's not about time management, it's about energy management. Um, because how you spend your time is partially defined by the energy levels you have in that time. And so if you've got your energy in the right place, you only make way more progress than if you're rinsed. So don't push S uphill. Try to, you know, man struggles uphill, water flows downhill. So try to set up your work tasks to have things flowing downhill to not be fighting yourself the whole time can you give me an example of what is in each of those buckets for you at this current point what's your challenge um, i don't know so as an example like we're building landing pages uh and figuring out what the marketing for them should be so this is go and find the sort of i'd say minimum of two maximum of four of the most relevant landing pages so that's low cognitive load is like going around like clicking on different offerings and finding them then you found the ones that are good then a high cognitive load task is okay now you need to genome them which is basically writing out the medical condition of what they are so here's all the elements here's the order they've got them in and then you figure out okay what elements do we need okay well this one's got four elements this one's got six elements this one's got five elements okay well in all else there's some overlap but together we've got like eight elements and i think that we should roll with four elements in this order <clears throat> And so that's like a high cognitive load task thing. And then a mental chocolate mm -hmm. thing might be, okay, you found something on one of those websites. It's supremely interesting about the way that they're thinking about going about things. So you save that up to deep dive into something later. Um, and it is useful and it is important, but it's not necessarily what you should be doing at that moment. Um, so you're just uh, balancing these things to try to get them, you know, to work with your environment, not against your environment. That's a very good example. I like that. 
And what about like when you're looking at your different employees, how much of a difference is there between what is a low cognitive task for one versus another? How much variation do you see? Oh, huge. Um, but it depends like, um, so the difference between a, a novice and an expert, they say, is the schema that you've built up. And so if you're like an expert at chess, um, all of the really good ones, they say, can remember, like photographically remember, uh, so photographs the wrong word, but they can remember that they can remake the entire chessboard. So they look at it, and they can they can remake it. And if you're a novice, you're like, what is the you know rook able to do? Okay, it's able to do this move. So you, you can't sort of see the pattern. So they're seeing the patterns of all their strategy and the patterns of all the strategy that their opponent is having as well. But then if you take them to go, they they can't remake the the um, board, you know, because they're a novice at go, right? But they're an expert at chess, and this is domain expertise. Um, and so. To me, different people will have different cognitive load things. So to me, I don't know, like I'm not a good chess player. Um, and to do this, it might be very, very high cognitive load trying to build a strategy and it will take a long time and it'll be very slow. Um, whereas somebody who is very, very good or an expert at chess will be able to come up with a high quality strategy very, very quickly. Um, and so it just depends. Like, but yeah, what it is for one person, it's not what it is for another person. And a lot of that is based on domain expertise um, and trying to understand those things. Um, but also, like, to me, just making progress. Um, so I try to be agnostic <coughs> and just to, <coughs> excuse me, um, focus on whatever is the most important thing to focus on at that time. Um, so, yeah. So do you think once someone becomes good at something, then it can kind of transform into chocolate? Like, once you're good at chess, does it become chocolatey? Uh, chocolate for me is normally something that I find very interesting that I want to do. Um, read or consume and then try to understand what it is um and that changes so whatever was chocolate a year ago is probably not interesting now because i've probably learned about it you know um and so <clears throat> yeah to me it just shifts with time um yeah i don't know if that helps no it does i'm wondering too like what is the biggest mistake like sorry do you see people getting themselves in into a mistake where they're sort of novelty seeking and maybe swapping interest too quickly and they're not becoming like proficient in any one thing or do you think like how do you think people should balance those two concepts it really depends on on where you are and i, I suppose like so there should be some professional development at work but you should also have your own professional self-development plan um and if you don't have a professional self-development plan i would assume or i'd say that you're probably likely to grow slower than somebody who does so again a company i think should be helping you with professional development but you should also be helping yourself um and to me there's, it's, it's fine. Like the best things are delicious and nutritious. The best things are selfless and selfish. Um, and so done well, professional self-development isn't this like, oh, I have to do this because I get the reward at the end. Like the journey is a reward and the destination is a reward. Um, and so it's just find how to level or find what areas that we need help in and then figure out how to level up to help. Um, and because I think if your your value sort of metric or your your sort of whatever like reward um, system is based on not your personal interests or your personal what you like, but based instead on what's going to help, then I think that that's far more sustainable. Um, like it's like this, you know, uh, improving education. I don't think is going to not be important tomorrow. You know, <laughs> and I think we have a lot of improvement to do. Um, even if you had the best education system in the world, it can still be improved, and that should still be improved to me. And so there are things that I've liked, like, I don't know, when I was 20, I was quite into fashion and now I don't really care. Like, I mean, I, like, I, I don't spend any time shopping, uh, you know, I don't go online, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I suppose that was an interest that is not longer really an interest, but 
um, you know, it's ephemeral, but certain bigger problems like improving education or climate change or whatever else it is um, will be there tomorrow. And that's a far, I think, better foundation upon which you should try to optimize where you want to improve or level up in. Um, so, but then you need different people like a champion team, whatever, AFL, anything. It's not you need everyone being a ruck or everyone this, you need different players. And so together, they're more than the sum of their parts. And I think a company has a lot of analogies to that. You don't want everyone being the same. Um, and so you do need different people. You need a captain, you need a you know full forward, you need a, a coach, you need all these things, right? Um, and yeah, which one people go to? I don't know, it, it depends. Um, it depends on what the shape of the team should be. And also like, you're not always playing AFL. You might sometimes be playing whatever else it is, you know, two play, you know, doubles tennis or something because the game shifts. And so the, therefore the team should shift. And so one of the things, this is getting into, I don't know, off tangent. It's like, what is the project team for this? Okay, what do we need on the project team? And if you're missing two key players or types of people to, you know, with expertise, you're probably going to have a much lower chance of doing very well in that. Mm. And so figuring out what game you're playing and as such what team you need or project team you need is a big part of it. Uh, or, you know, and then figuring out what you need to do to, 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 to deliver. Mm. Can you tell me what's your archetype in a team and then who do you pull in to balance out yourself? It depends. Like whatever is needed. Every team is different. Uh, and so um, I don't want to be on any team I don't need to be on. Um, I don't need to have a certain position in certain teams. Um, I just want to figure out how to make progress. And so in some teams, I'm on the working or project group, um, project team. In other ones, they come and they report back. Um, and I suppose if you're senior like I am, then you might have like, is it like, you know, it's normally like weekly, fortnightly, monthly, you know, and then you're seeing things. But other times I'll be on the project team and then I'm also reporting back um, to people. Um, and so it's just whatever is needed. Uh, and so what I'm doing is very different to what I was doing two years ago. So I was running, you know, a sort of big part of the company and setting all these things. And now it's me and sort of one other person trying to figure out or part of the way I look at it. Um, and this is only for part of it is building connective tissue that doesn't currently exist across teams so that we can coordinate better. Um, for, you know, for better or worse, I think there's almost always some level of miscommunication or misunderstanding happening. You can't have everyone know everything. And so sometimes the job that is needed is to increase the connective tissue. And once you have that, then you can understand the problem space. So diagnose before you prescribe. So if you don't understand the, the, the problem space, you are very unlikely to be able to put forward a good solution. Yeah. I love the sound of this connective tissue. Can you give me some examples of the things that you've been trying to implement to strengthen it? Well, so we are building um, the sort of, you know, strategy for this year. Uh, we have one, but we're sort of there. And then we need to figure out all of the, you know, approach, like who do we speak to and what is the process to get from like a, what is this to a hopefully a yes. And then there's normally, because schools are sort of, there's not like normally one decision maker. You need to have multiple people get on board to have something go ahead. What are the materials that are needed um, for this? So if you um people with, without the materials needed, then they can't have the conversation, you know, that is needed for people to make an informed decision. And so if you're building this, you might need to understand, okay, we well, need to understand the, the content. You need to understand the digital product. You need to understand who the people in the school are and you need to try to then figure out what materials and what sales funnel from top to bottom makes sense. And then you build these things and then you go out and you, you know, test and you go and you try to explain stuff to people say, are you interested? And they go, I don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, oh God. Uh, and then you had to uh, explain, you know, understand why that they can't understand. And then, you know, oh God, this was missing. And so 
normally, let's say the first version of everything is crap, Hemingway. And so you've got normally, I'd say, two to five versions to get something to work. And if it's not working by the fifth version, you're normally barking up the wrong tree and you need to understand why this is happening. You kind of need to sort of stop and reassess and not just kind of iterate or update. But like, are we literally trying to do something we shouldn't be trying to do? This is not a winning strategy. It's not possible to make the strategy win at all. You know, we've got to try a new strategy, not just updates to the strategy. And what does that look like if you want to go back through that process, if you really do feel like you've hit a dead end? It hurts like hell. <laughs> it's not fun. Um, it, it just is what it is, right? Like, so so often I said the biggest problem is figuring out what the problem is. And and one way to define what a problem is, the job to be done framework from Clayton Christensen. Um, and so you are trying to understand what the job to be done is. And if you misspecify the job to be done, then no solution is going to fix the job to be done because you're kind of literally pushing on a string. Um, and so you're almost always that like, there's another framework, problem, solution, how, execution. And problem, one way to articulate problem is jobs to be done. So if you've got the problem wrong, doesn't matter how, you know, problem, solution, how, execution, doesn't matter what your solution is, it doesn't help. Then you've got the solution right, then you still got to how, like get the marketers right, and then you've got everything right, and then you've got to execute well. Okay, well, have we trained this person? Are they understanding? Do we have all the objections noted? Do we have good um, ways to handle those objections, et cetera? Uh, and so to me, you're kind of almost always working on one of those levels, problem, solution, how, execution. Um, you know, we want a new strategy for this year, so we have a new, or is it the same problem? Well, like kind of, or yes, but then the, the solution is, in my opinion, materially different this year to what we're applying. Um, and, and it should be because, you know, we want to level up each year um, and make big progress. And so if you do exactly the same thing as last year, you should expect exactly the same thing you had. You know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing again and again and expecting a different outcome, Einstein. And so you've got to try to reassess things as required. Um, now, if something's working really well, I don't know, cash flow positive, and you've got like 10% of the available, you know, problem space sorted. Now just expand your ability to address the other 90% you're not currently able to address. Um, but most of the time, I suppose I'm probably more in the problem solution sections. Um, but no, no, because you need to understand the full stack. Otherwise, you don't know if your, your solution works well. Um, mm -hmm. So having people that see the full picture at sufficient plus resolution, I think is crucial to being able to put forward good, good you know, proposals. Um, and it's really hard. Like it takes a lot of time to get to a sufficient plus understanding of the full picture of the problem space. But it is required, you know, prerequisite to be able to put forward good solutions from my perspective. And so I suppose that's part of what I'm thinking about from connective tissue is, well, there are people that know 25% of the problem and 25, 25, 25 is example, so four different things. But it's very unlikely that anyone who only understands 25% of the problem space is going to be able to put forward a good solution set because that's not all that we need to take into consideration. Um, and so I'm trying to understand 100% of the problem space um, at sufficient plus resolution. And therefore, I believe that it is possible that I can make high quality recommendations. Uh, and so that's a big component of what I think one needs to do. So when you're trying to research the problem space, like what does that look like? And how do you take into consideration the cognitive biases that might be sort of coming up in the way that people are presenting the problem to you? Yeah, so th there's three kinds of problems to talk about. Known problem, known solution. Known problem, unknown solution. Unknown problem and therefore unknown solution. Um, known problem, known solutions are normally sorted. And so if you're building a product with a known problem, known solution, well, there's already a solution in market. I mean, I suppose you could be lucky that there is a known problem, known solution, no one's in market. Then that's easier to do. But most of the time that isn't the case. And so there might be a known problem. So you can speak to people and they can tell you a problem, but they don't know what the solution is. Then you come up with different solution ideas and you go, is this a good solution? And they're like, yeah, that's a great one. Or like, no, 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 that's going to help me. Okay, back to the drawing board or whatever, right? And then if you figured out a solution, you've got to build the thing. 
Um, and then you've got to figure out how to explain it to people. Um, so to me, sales is the art of helping someone do something they didn't yet know they wanted to do, not getting someone to do something they shouldn't do. Um, and so to me, you're trying to find something that's better than the existing thing um, and then to be able to explain it in a way that people agree and then want to implement. Um, and it's surprisingly difficult. <laughs> um, you know, or at least it, I find it surprisingly difficult. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And so, I don't know, like I'll throw a problem at you just for fun. Like just say we've got a problem like ADHD. Yeah. So there's a whole bunch of problems associated with that. How do you kind of go about working out what is the actual problem to kind of, I don't know, target it, make it something that's centralized? Like how would you look at trying to solve, just say a problem of organization with that particular category of people, then what? What do you do with that? Um, okay, so like I don't know if I have expertise necessarily in this because, you know, we are building products for schools. Um, yeah. And, you know, in a class, there's normally a broad, you know, spectrum of people. Um, you know, some of them might have like a learning disability, like dyslexia. Some of them might have neurodiversity, like ADHD or whatever else it is. Um, and so there's one teacher and, you know, 25 students, I suppose, is the average class. And so you're trying to build something that is better on average than the existing solution that they've got. But it's unlikely that you're going to have the perfect solution for every single person. Um, and that's also prohibitively expensive to build as well. Um, and so to me, you're trying to take into account the different signals or different things you have learned and to build a blended average that is a better outcome than now. Um, and so I suppose, you know, if you had unlimited time, unlimited money, you could build custom individual things, but that is certainly not the world that I operate in. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, you need to spend a lot of time doing like research. I talk about this, you know, and understanding things, but it's not enough to just go and speak to people. Um, and do what they say, um, because sometimes what people say is what should be done, and other times it's actually counterproductive, and other times they're not even saying anything that is what's going to help, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, it does. Yeah, yeah. So, so <laughs> where, where it gets harder. Um, and so to me, I talk about three types of innovation, zero to one, where there was nothing and you build something, one to 10, there's something, but it's not working very well into a lot large improvements, 10 plus, something that's working well, and you see these small optimizations. And so for a large company with an existing product, you know, it, it probably is working very well. Otherwise, it couldn't be a large company with an existing product unless, I don't know, they have no customers and they're just funded by somebody who doesn't worry about this being something that can make financial you know, sense, like it, it can, you know, be cash flow neutral. Um, and so a lot of the things that people talk about are based from bigger companies. Okay, you do research, okay, you listen to people, you, you know, you go and average things out and then you build these things. And that can be a very, very useful approach to 10 plus optimization but isn't necessarily the same approach you should do for zero to one innovation. Um, and so to me, zero to one, there isn't a, in my understanding anyway, uh, a process you can follow that will always lead you to improvements. There is some, some sort of, if you want to call this like difference each time, some sort of like, um, I'm going to use the word magic, although it's not the right word, because I think innovation can be a process. Um, but the process and the understanding and the synthesis is not always able to be done in the same way. Uh, and so, I don't know, like, the more you can empathize with the different people that you have, that's really important. So if you can understand, normally like 80% plus is my minimum of the problem space, then you can move forward because it, it gets incrementally harder to get to like 90% to 99% to 99.9%. Um, and so the time that you've had to spend to improve your ability to empathize could have been spent in building a solution that gives a better outcome than the existing one. Uh, and so we are worried about net progress, not about some perfect thing. Um, so don't let, you know, perfect be the enemy of good. 
um, and try to move forward on, on things. Yeah, okay. So when you're trying to work out the problem, you've got your scaffolding, like talking to people, researching existing solutions. Like what are the other kind of pools that you dip into? Yeah, so you should have a strong basis of the academic research. So you should understand the core ideas that you'll have. You should go and figure out the personas of the teachers and the students, and then you should go and speak to them and understand what was happening. And then you should go and look at the existing resources in market and you should go and understand what's happening there. And you try to write out the pros and cons of all these things. And then you want to find why you can put forward a solution that is a material step forward. Um, if it's the same, there's no point building it. Because um, you know, just get the same outcome, a lot of effort and energy to not have intangible delivered improvements to education. Um, and then you need to prototype, so you batch size one, and you get things to happen, and then you understand: is this working or is it not? Is this enough of an improvement that people will care? Because sometimes if it's a small improvement, then it's like too hard. And so normally, the, if it's small, medium, and large, ideally you're doing large improvements. Large improvements are much more likely to resonate to take on board. Medium, sometimes you can get smalls. It's just in the too hard bucket because people have normally got way too much going on and they have time to action. So you need to find a way to fight to be part of the priority list or part of the stuff they're willing to try to do. Um, and so I think those are necessary three, you know, curses to be able to put something forward. What you do with them and how you figure out from those things, you know, identifying proper problems um, and then building solutions that make a material difference over the problem that people have now is not easy um, and is not something you can follow well here's the 10 step process if you always follow the 10 step process then you always get something to make progress um, if that was the case then we'd have um, a far faster progress i would say than we have at the current time yeah okay and do you think that most this is i'm not sure exactly how to ask this like do you think that most problems can be solved on a small scale so for example something from ed rollo if you had zero budget would you be able to implement one small change in one classroom and then with funding scale it like do you think that there's a way to test out if a problem or a solution is working on a very very small scale without letting money be being the limiter yeah i mean that's always the goal you want to be spending your you know resources whether they are like you know financial you know human you know whatever um, as wisely as possible. Um, but some things, the minimum investment is larger. And so when you start a business, presumably you've got not much capital. Um, and so you are constrained to be able to look at problems that can be addressed with inside your means. You, you have to operate with inside your means, right? Um, but if you have more capital, then there is a different set of problems that you can probably address. Um, but if you get it wrong, then you've probably not, you know, you've wasted a lot of, you know, resources, which is obviously very, very bad. Um, so over time, your resources hopefully compound, um, and therefore the set of things that you can address in, increases. Um, but you need to be careful because, you know, and they said pride comes before a fall, um, and you know, past success so unchecked success leads to failure, right? And then failure is success. So you know, success leads you to having overconfidence, and overconfidence leads you to make poor decisions, um, and then you you get your comeuppance or whatever else it is, right? Um, and so. Yeah, try to figure out what is the most important thing to do. And some of those things are small investments, some of them are medium investments, some of them are large investments. Um, don't always do smalls or don't always do larges. Just do whatever makes the most sense. What makes the most sense? Well, it depends. Um, you know, so yeah, each circumstance is different. There's not always one answer. Yeah. You seem to have a humble mindset. How do you kind of do that? Like, why do you think that? Why do you, is it a practice that you've done to keep checking and checking and checking to make sure that you don't make kind of brash decisions or how does that work? I think I've made some good decisions. I think I've made some bad decisions. Um, and so to me, there's um, hubris, hubris mindset, humble mindset and harmful mindset. Um, and so success normally unchecked leads to hubris, which leads to failure. 
um, which may lead to a harmful mindset. And so you don't want to be overconfident. You don't want to be underconfident. Um, and I think that trying to know that you could be wrong um, and trying to find where you're wrong, so this whole idea of falsification, not verification, um, is really important. Um, and I think, you know, verification is, you know, uh, uh, what's its confirmation bias? Um, and so to me, but then also you do need to find why things are working, but you also need to look for why things aren't working. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a difficult puzzle. There's no answer, I think, um, to, it's not like, again, you should have different modes. Um, there's not always one approach that makes sense. You've got to try to adapt, um, whatever that, you know, Darwin quote, it's not the strongest that survives, it's the most adaptable. Um, and so trying to understand that you should be adapting and that you should try to figure out what is optimal for whatever circumstances and to have as many modes as possible and to pick the right mode or to have different ways of approaching understanding a problem space and to adapt the way that you understand that problem space is really important else you're unlikely to make as much progress as you otherwise would. Yeah. And then how much do you think like your ability to tackle a problem has to do with all of the other components in your life working cohesively, like exercise and meditation and every other thing? Like how interlinked are those pieces? I, I sort of call these the fundamentals. Um, so to me, you should exercise. You don't have to be a triathlete or some sort of Olympian, but no exercise is bad. Um, you should eat well. You know, um, I have sort of five days a week of eating well, one day a week of all bets off, cheat day, you know, Tim Ferriss, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> then you should try to sleep well. Um, so to me, you should be going to bed at the same time. You should be trying to get eight hours sleep. My sleep is mainly dictated by stress levels. Um, so if I am not stressed, I sleep well. If I am stressed, I sleep shocking. Uh, and it's a really good barometer because sometimes stress is insidious. You don't necessarily see it, um, but your, your, your mind doesn't understand, but your body knows, as they say, your body keeps score. Um, and, and so then, you know, you want to be able to have some time recharging. Um, you want to be able to have, you know, high quality relationships. Um, that Harvard study that, you know, the biggest single factor determining people's life satisfaction was the quality of the relationships. So I think you should have good quality relationships at work and good quality relationships outside of work and you need to invest in them. I don't think you can expect to have good quality relationships if you don't proactively invest. And you don't have to always proactively invest. You can just hang out, but you should be spending time to build relationships in a proactive manner. Um, and so, yeah, I think you, you need to have your job stuff in order. You need to also have your professional self-development stuff in order. And you should be spending some time on this. And so, to me, I consider these the fundamentals, the foundation upon which you can then build things. And if you don't have the fundamentals in order, you're building something on a shaky foundation and it may well crumble at some point. And that's not good for you or for others. Um, so, yeah, um, fundamentals that I would consider is exercise, food, sleep, relationships, you know, self-improvement, meditation, recharging. Um, and then a job that you, you know, see as a mission or a purpose that is important to improving the world um, because then having motivation that is maintained is much easier than if you're just, just earning money or something. Yeah, okay. And correct me if I'm wrong. So just say you were in a wobbly mental health space because you've got so much logic scaffolding around the decisions that you've made, you couldn't really wobble too far off course if you were, say, like emotional or something because you've built that security. Is that correct? I have good days and bad days, like I suppose everyone. Um, to me, the main determinant of them is just the stress levels. Um, and so sometimes it's extraordinarily stressed and other times, you know, not. Um, but to me, I found that, you know, this, you know, um, two shall pass, you know, being, you know, something really good, it passes, something really bad, it passes. Uh, and so tomorrow is a new day um, and just one foot in front of the other. And so to me, that's, I suppose, something I attempt to have, you know, you know one foot in front of the other. It doesn't matter how bad things are, one foot in front of the other. Um, and so almost all problems have a solution um, and you just need to figure out what it is. Um, 
And so to me, just because you don't have one, and that's you know a non-trivial portion of the time, kind of like all the time, I don't know if you ever know. Um, and so to me, you can't let yourself get too caught up or demotivated. So I think 80 or 90% of the time, it is your job to maintain your motivation. 10, 20% of the time, it's okay to rely on others or to help them uh, or have them help you. Um, but if someone needs support 50% of the time, I don't think that's right. And so to me, normally a unit of support costs you less than the value that is received by somebody. So it might cost you one unit of energy or one unit of time, but the unit of energy they receive or the sort of lift off them from like, you know, you're, you're, I'll take this is, is much more than the one unit it costs you. And hopefully not everyone has a bad day or bad month or a bad week or whatever at the same time. And as such, you can help each other. So you're stronger together. Uh, and so to me, yeah, I look to be self-sufficient as much as possible, but that does not mean 100%. But you need to be careful about when you're asking for support um, because, you know, asking too much is not a good thing, but asking never is a bad thing too. Um, and so, yeah, um, the, there, there are tough times. Yeah? <laughs> um, but the other one is like your stress level or your ability to deal with stress um, should go up with time. And so now, like what is like hardcore stress would have probably been debilitating, you know, 10 years ago or something, like non-workable. Um, and I suppose if it's too hot in the kitchen, get out of the kitchen. Right? You know, this is not necessarily for you. You need to change something. Like you need to change your job or you need to change something at work. Um, so to me, some days I finish tank empty. There's nothing in there. So it empties is lunchtime, right? But the goal is to not always finish every day tank empty. And then you'd have days like Saturday is Duncan Day is mainly the, the goal is recharge, right? Refill the tank. Um, and yeah, um, you just do what you have to do. Um, and so, yeah, I suppose the other one is like, never say die ever, 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 ever under any circumstances, you know? Um, it doesn't matter how bad things are, just keep on one foot in front of the other. Yeah. What, what do you think, like, I don't know, like what, what, what are the things that stress you out the most? Is it kind of, is it, is there a clear answer to that? Or is that a silly question? Time pressure, financial stress, bad people, like draining people. Those are the three major areas. And in some businesses, like, I don't know, I worked at Google. Um, I was very small, you know, low, you know, sort of, you know, junior employee. Um, and that company, you know, mints cash and, you know, everything. So there was no financial stress for me there at all. Perhaps there were certain people, but like, you know, I don't know if you're in a startup, you raise money, you're cash flow negative almost by definition because you're required to spend the money. So you're trying to then become cash flow positive before you run out of money or then need to raise more money, right? Um, and so then time pressure, if you have cash issues, is a much more real thing than some sort of like, oh, yeah, you know, it'd be nice to get it done by this. Like, we don't get this done by this point. Then we're not going to have the cash required and then we're going to have to like do something drastic, like cut heads or something, right? Um, and so to me, um, yeah, the, the major areas is time pressure, financial stress and draining people. Uh, and people can go from being really good to like really bad uh, for whatever reason. Like, you know, sometimes it's external circumstances, sometimes it's internal circumstances, like, you know, it shifts in every color of a rainbow. Yeah, I was going to ask that, like, what, what to you is a draining person? It's mainly that, one, I don't know, they're not able to deliver on whatever it is they're working on, or two, they're not working in a positive some way. Uh, mm. And so sometimes some people um, get into a place where they're just really negative. Like, I know that I've, like, in jobs in the past, gotten to a point where I was deeply over it. Like, I did not want to be doing that job anymore. And so I would say that... Um, I don't know, there was a time where I was into it and I was hopefully adding a lot of value. And then there was a time where I was over it and I was like not trying, you know, to do the best quality work. I just was like, I just need to get out of here. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are times where some people, the way that they um, interact with others 
so some people can hopefully everyone can interact with some people well but not everyone everyone i think one of the ways of maturity is the the ability for you to work with a large portion of people goes up so when you're whatever stuff first time effort work you probably haven't built this um because most of education up to that point is a single player game you know your school it's just you you know university now some of degrees are more collaborative mine engineering and commerce was single player there was some group projects but it was really quite single player and so to me i hadn't had to work in team environments anywhere near to the extent that i did in a workplace or do now and so learning how to work with people is a very 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 important thing and some people refer to this as emotional intelligence and i suppose that's one component of it um and some people are bloody good at it and others are not very good at it and need to level up so you know it just is what it is how how would you teach that skill if you could take control of the unis um that's an interesting one i don't know like it, it's like you need to kind of create i suppose companies or something but then that's not necessarily the purpose of uni um so it's it's funny like for me i learned how to learn i suppose at university um not necessarily because they were good but because the, the the lecturers were so uninterested to me that they didn't really care right and they just did stuff and so if we didn't figure out how to teach ourselves no one would have passed the exams um whereas i think that the teachers at school were significantly better at teaching you <laughs> than i found the the university but that actually with a bit of hindsight might be seen as a really big pro um I, i'm not sure i agree with that at the time because it was single swim right um and you know you learn to swim or you sink <laughs> um and so there's a lot of value in that kind of stuff and i think that that can put you in good stead for circumstances in the future but i don't know if it's able to replicate like large team projects that have you know years spans which is what i think is required so if you need to work with so i don't know rollers about 200 people on projects multi year projects um how do you replicate that at a university in a three year degree like i don't know if it's possible right now you can have projects and you, people always talk about this oh yeah we had the like project and there was three of us and no one else did anything and i did it all you know it's, yeah, <laughs> and it's like you know what have you done when your teamwork you're doing grads well i had this project and then they didn't lift so i had to lift and then i had to try to get this person to contribute this thing and i'm like okay so it sounds like the very much story that the last person said um and so um i don't know um that it's it's kind of the way it's, it's some respects it's like i don't know being a parent or something and not that I, i'm not a parent but i was thinking it's like how do you understand the commitment required and trained for need to get up in the middle of the night and people having tantrums or you know children having tantrums etc well you give them a kit you know you know it, it's hard to like read the book about being a parent now i know all about being a parent and i you know i've got this you know uh and so to me doesn't mean you can't learn like you know you've got to be on the field to, to to learn certain things now that doesn't mean you can't learn some stuff from being off the field look at these things but yeah um i don't have a good answer to this um I suppose I'm just that's the first thing that comes to mind. No, it's interesting though. And like when you were speaking before about emotional intelligence, I think we've touched on this, but remind me again like what do you think are the fundamentals to someone brushing up or trying to level up their emotional intelligence? I mean, there isn't necessarily like one answer to this, but I'd read the major terms like emotional intelligence, Daniel Goleman, etc. There are courses, but then one of the things I do is I try to um do at least one thing a week where the goal is to build empathy. Um So as an example there's a recent uh a TV show on SBS called from what it's called anyways it's um the swap uh where school, students from an Islamic school a Catholic school and a government school government schools and non secular swap going to different schools um mm-hmm. and 
you go around and you can learn some things from this, right? Um, I read a book, um, The Imagination, I forgot what it is, but it's about uh, effectively growing up poor in the US, the schooling system, uh, you know, being homeless and other stuff. And it's rough AF. I have wonderful parents who are still together. I did not grow up homeless. And so for my ability to sort of empathize with some of these things is not from my own personal experience. So it doesn't mean you can't understand. It just means you have to build your ability to understand. And so I think you should spend proactive time each week trying to build empathy. And specifically, you know, if you're working, you know, trying to build products for schools, then you should be trying to empathize with teachers. You should be trying to empathize with students and you should be trying to do these things. It doesn't mean you shouldn't try to empathize other, you know, stuff. Um, and that, that can be from TV shows to books, just speaking to people and asking about their experience. Um, but you should also try to replay things from different lenses. So if I am attempting to be whatever Jess in, in this, you know, podcast interview and how would I might have thought that saying this affected me? So you try to look at the world, not from your lens, you kind of put on a hat or put on glasses and pretend to be somebody else. And so you can systematically build empathy, which I think is one of the core components to, you know, emotional intelligence. Uh, and then you try to understand things. And the more you can understand others, normally the more you can help. Yeah. And then actually pulling it back into journaling, like when you go through that process, do you think that it's necessary to write it down? Uh, well, they say that writing is high quality thinking, and I've found that to be the case. Um, so you're thinking in your mind can be useful and you're probably thinking almost all the time. Um, but, to, you know, they say that you've got four to seven working slots of memory and large problems have more, let's just say four slots for the argument say here, more than four pieces. And so that's sometimes when you think about something, the more confused you get. So you've got four pieces in, then you put a fifth one in and then one pops out. And then you have synthesis of those four changes, and you put a sixth one in and one pops out. And so to me, um, you can wrestle with problems with more than four pieces if you're writing them down. You can start to look at them and you can start to make progress. Uh, so to me, a large problem has more than four pieces and normally requires writing to try to make some progress in it. But writing can be like, you know, often I'll be in spreadsheets because you can have dimensions in spreadsheets and you can put numbers next to things. Most things can be some quant, some qual. Uh, neither of them can perfectly contains the, the problem, but it's better than nothing. And you can also visualize things. So, so draw this for me in something like just make a two by two or show me how some of these things work together or make it into a taxonomy or something. Um, and so you try different avenues of, you know, uh, actualizing information. Um, and each normally each one has some parts or provides some insight more than just one approach. And hopefully you can get to a deeper understanding than if you just think about it or something. Yeah, okay. So if we took like a problem, like you're having an argument with your friend, mm. what would the approach that you take in terms of writing about that look like? Uh, so normally I'd go through and replay a timeline. <laughs> so you just write out what happened, dot, 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 dot. And then you then do the timeline from your perspective, you do the timeline from the other person's perspective. And then you try to see what you felt at that time. And then you try to think about what they might have felt at that time. And then you see if the way that you are thinking about what they felt can explain some of their actions. And then if you felt can explain your actions and then you can start to do, um, understand at a deeper level than you would have if you had, hadn't done this. And then you start to see, okay, well, I don't want to be fighting with my friend. What can I do to try to solve this, but also to try to make sure it doesn't happen again in the future. Um, and so to me, yeah, but there's only like, you shouldn't hopefully get to a point where you're fighting with friends. Um, but, <laughs> <I'm> just, like, <laughs> friends but like, yeah, I don't know, like um, I would like to believe that the positive summness, so you can either have oversimplification, positive sum or negative sum conversations. The percentage of my conversations with a positive sum, I like to believe it has gone up over time. So maybe it was 50%, 50 positive, 50 negative when I was 18. Um, and now it's like, I don't know, like I remember like my brother, we used to fight like cats and dogs when we were teenagers. Um, I don't recall the last time we've had a fight now. Um, just because you don't actually have the same view on something doesn't mean you are in a fight. 
it's normally so people that have a different view point of view view is an opportunity to learn you don't normally learn something from somebody who has exactly the same point of view as you um and so to me um yeah if that, that was the case i'd sort of go through map the time out look from different, both different sides try to see if the model that you're building explains the actions if it does hopefully you've got some relatively good understanding of the circumstances then you've done enough diagnosis to be able to understand the problem space then you put forward a solution set but there is, is, is this I, i'm almost never this systematic outside of work <laughs> um and but inside of work i'd like to be very systematic um and so to me you can have an approach just like if you're trying to figure out how to do marketing where well, you need to think about the different frameworks people have you need to understand the different personas that are in there they need to think about what the market ad angles would work for the different personas and all other jazz and so People that are more systematic normally can make more progress um, in both understanding the problem space and putting forward solution sets than those that aren't. Um, and this is, you know, mental models, what Charlie Munger would say. And so to me, um, yeah, you can and should apply models in certain areas of life, but I also don't think you should do it in all areas of life. There should be some parts which are serendipity, just unplanned, just going with the flow. Um, but I would argue that at work, most of the time should not be that. Most of the time should be as considered as possible. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense too. So for you, like for your personal practice, do you do you ever just sort of sit down and just write like stream of consciousness style or what are the kind of different channels or approaches that you take to writing? It depends. Um, so, well, there's different things. Like, so I have different things set up. So like, I don't know, like I have a year in review. And so, and that happens at the end of the year, which is the calendar year, um, you know, I normally have between Christmas and New Year off. And I will try to look at what I wrote last time and try to think about this, try to make plans. Um, but then I don't necessarily systematically check in on them. Um, some of them I'll set goals in other areas and they'll, they'll go into reminders and whatever else. And other ones I'll just be like, yeah, it's, a, it's a, something I'd like to make progress in and I'll check back in a year. Then there are other things like a project, like a big project at work, we try to have a review at the end of it. And what went well, what didn't go well. Um, it's often harder. Um, this is, I think, the next blog, right? Like, you know, what went wrong review. Um, and you're specifically doing that because otherwise you just have a review and it's easy to under um, allocate time to what went wrong. Um, and I'm not saying you should be 100% of your time, but you should allocate the appropriate amount of time. And I've personally found that I am easily able to under allocate time to what went wrong and also that others are too. And so if you have it as a separate component, normally it's easier to allocate time appropriately. Um, but then if there's a really big problem, I should talk about like, I'll just write about it. Um, so I have like a notes uh, thing in my phone, the Apple notes and all the people in my life, there's like mum or whatever else it is, right? And you just write notes in there. And some of the times it's like, oh, this article that I read, I just put a note there, bang. And so the next time I catch up with mum, it's like a prompt to talk about something, right? Because um, normally, like, I don't know, I might see mum once a week and I might see five things during the week that I think she'd be really interested in and that I want to talk to her about, but she's not there. So, you know, I've just read some article, it's like 7 a.m. in the morning or whatever. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't want to ring her right, right now or whatever and have like a 15-minute conversation over the time. Um, and, and But then when you catch up with her, um, so often I'll just like quick pull up the notes thing before you catch your mom. Oh, here's the five things, bang, and then just close. And normally you're like preloaded. And then if you're running out of conversation or something, then it's like, oh, that thing. Oh, what about this mom? Or whatever else it is. So I don't know. Um, but then if there's a big problem with somebody, um, I will just start writing notes about it. And you're just kind of getting thoughts out and you see what this is and you slowly start to make progress. Um, yeah. Do you, when you're writing, do you try and edit yourself for cognitive biases as you're thinking with them, or do you try and write them down with the purpose of seeing with clarity the biases that you're thinking with? Well, I think, you know, you, you try to do this. So, you know, confirmation bias is verification in some respects, and falsification you know, pop up part of the core part of the, the scientific method. So you're kind of trying to look for where you're wrong as, as much as you're trying to look for where you're right. Um, so um, I don't know, if you're 50-50, maybe you're attempting to be you know, unbiased. Um, 
And you're trying to see like, am I overconfident here? Am I underconfident here? And sort of these things. Um, so being aware of some of these things, like, you know, fundamental attribution error um, is another one that I think comes up a lot. Um, yeah, you, you should be attempting to be aware of these things and hopefully they are set to be unconscious competence. And so you don't need to have like some prompt list, like have I been biased, blah, 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 and look at these things. Um, but yeah, you'll sort of see. Um, but, um, you know, again, like reviewing 10% of my work week, um, and normally adds far more value than the 10% of the time that it takes. And so that it's a net ROI positive activity. But if, if there's like a little part of Duncan, and I don't know if this has happens to you, that's like, oh, this is unfair, this sucks. Like, will you indulge that little part briefly in your journal just to write it down to kind of then have a conversation with that part of yourself? Or will you just like not even indulge it and write it down, just push it out of your kind of headspace because it's not a, a fruitful path? Well, if something is not good, and there are definitely things in my life that are not good and things, there's normally some set of circumstances that led up to that not being good. It wasn't just like there was a giant earthquake and your house <laughs> top of the fault line fell into it. You know, it's like couldn't do anything, right? Um, and so I think it's important. Um, so I don't know if there's three sizes of decisions, small, medium, and large. If something's pretty bad, then it's a large, right? And you should probably think, well, how did I get into this circumstance? And you can normally trace back, you know, oh, okay, this actually started like 18 months ago and I couldn't see it at the time, right? And then the set of circumstances led to this and, a, you know, a couple of bad decisions along the way, you know, made it significantly worse than it could have been. Um, and so you should be doing these reviews um, and trying to understand. Um, and so to me, you don't want to be helpless, like learned helplessness or learned helplessness. Um, and so to me, it doesn't matter if I'm in a good place or a bad place. I'm not happy or unhappy. What matters if I have a plan or not? So if I'm in a good place with no plan, unhappy. If I'm in a bad place with a plan, happy. Well, happy is probably the wrong word, fine. Like I'm not feeling like everything's out of control. And mm -hmm. so to me, if there's a part of your life, whether it's work parts or other that are not good, I would say try to build a plan to get to a good place or to at least not be in a bad place. And if you can do that, the plan is almost certainly going to be wrong, but hopefully there's elements of it that are right and then it's going to mean you move forward and you upset the plan as required. Um, and so sometimes if you look at it a different way, like sometimes you're just sad about something. And, and I think that people are taught that like, oh, at least I was taught, like emotional health is feeling good emotions and not feeling bad emotions. Um, and to me, no, I think emotional health is feeling all emotions in a healthy way. So you can feel sadness or regret or, you know, like, I don't know, you've lost somebody, you know, in a, in a healthy way because it teaches you like, okay, well, to treasure the existing friendships or relationships that you have more because you kind of didn't realise that this person was important and now they're not around. And so you would have, you know, looked, you know, and, and smelt the roses more in the moment, in, in the past. And so to me, normally at work, I'm not trying to sit in emotions and dwell on them. I'm trying to make progress, but outside of work, definitely times. Um, so like, I don't know, tonight or whatever, just go sitting or, or weekend, it's like, cool, let your emotions run the show. You're not trying to, okay, cool, bring them back on. And then whatever emotion happens, like, you know, you're not trying to like a bad emotion, get rid of that one as fast as possible, you know, whatever is required that, you know, um, they say, nah, um, again, like to me, I don't think of them as good or bad. I think of them as signals and I think of them as be able to be healthy or unhealthy. So trying to be happy the whole time can be unhealthy and being sad can be healthy. I, I hope you don't want to be sad all the time, but it can be, you know, a way to help you understand what's important to, to, you know, lean into, you know, treasuring different things, um, et cetera. And so, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense too. Usually, yeah, it always does. Um, but like, what do you think? <laughs> I feel like I say that too much. What do you think about people? 
I don't know, there seems to be a lot of people at the moment struggling in like the space of relationships. And I guess that's maybe coming from the fact of like, if you lose the person that you like or this and that, you don't really feel like you've got a plan. Like what is a kind of more logic or strategic approach that you think people could start taking toward that particular subject? Because it seems to have amplified since COVID is at least my perception. Like, Yeah, um, well, I mean, everyone, each their own. There is no one way. So to me, uh, can you be single and happy? Yes. Can you be happy in a traditional, committed, monogamous relationship? Yes. Can you have some sort of, you know, polygamy or whatever? Sure. Um, to me, there isn't one answer. Um, for myself personally, I would like to have, I think it's the same as sort of eating his analogy. You don't want to, like, carrots are healthy. But if you only eat carrots, you will die of malnutrition, right? And so you want a diverse, healthy, uh, you know, diet. And I think you want a diverse, healthy set of relationships. And so to me, I have some fun time friends. You just go out, have a drink, have a party or whatever, right? And I'm not saying that I wouldn't want to see the other things, but I don't really see them in other circumstances, right? And so they say that you can know sort of 10 people really well to the point where you basically know almost everything's going on in their life. Sure, could it be, you know, 12 or 8? Yes, but is it 20? Probably not, Joan. Um, and so to me, if you only had one person or no people, which, excuse me, you knew um, a lot of what's going on in their life, um, I would say that's not good. And so I have a sort of five, you know, I sort of, you know, the, um, family and five friend family. Um, and I know basically all that's going on in their lives and we talk and, you know, Matho's hierarchy of mateship, um, which they made up. So good friends, you know, there for you in the bad times or something's really, you know, um, you know, not going well, you can call them. Then there's just hanging out. But then they also push you, like intellectually, also call you on your crap, like you were acting like a douchebag. You're like, oh, what do I? And so if, if you've got a lot of relationship capital with somebody, if they tell you that, you listen. But if you have no relationship capital, like, F off, mate, you know, what do you know? You know, I was being great, you know? Um, and so to me, um, outside of work, I, I think that you should have, so this is, one of the outcomes of that the longest running study ever um which is based on people from harvard which is hardly representative but i think the learnings are you know instructive and just you can, you can learn from almost anything which is that high quality relationships are the single biggest component to uh you know enjoyable life and so to me if you are not proactively investing in high quality relationships then i don't think you should you know expect to have them that doesn't mean you have to invest all the time but you should invest more than zero not just it's sort of happenstance or just you know something happens right um i'll give you an example like one of my best mates and his family were down last weekend uh, from Sydney and I hadn't seen them. I don't know when the last time they were in Melbourne was. Um, and on Saturday, he's like, do you want to come and have dinner with my family? Um, and I had a friend's 40th on at the same time. And I'm like, God damn it. Like, what are these? And I'd already committed to going to the 40th like RSVP and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I'm like, look, those people at that 40th, I, a lot, I like them a lot. The person's 40th is a wonderful person. Um, but... I can't do both. And in this circumstance, even though I've committed to this, it took me a little while to wrestle with this one. It's like, yeah, this is what should happen. And I actually ended up coming to my parents' house because um, this is my best mate growing up. And so, you know, they've known him since he was five years old. Um, and I don't know if they've met the girls. Maybe they met them once. Um, you know, the, the parents were invited to their wedding. I was best man at his wedding. Um, and so to me, it was like, yeah, that's a really good time to invest. But also the family coming over and, and the girls. Um, and I got them some Lego because I like Lego. And also I got them sort of like vehicle Lego, um, which is perhaps not necessarily stereotypical female Lego, but there was a big spaceship, you know, rocket launch. And James and I used to do a lot of Lego when we were growing up and we were particularly into vehicles, so cars, et cetera. Um, and so it was kind of a little bit of like, oh, here's a kind of present from our, you know, childhood. Even though I know that it may not necessarily fit exactly what you're interested in right now, that wasn't necessarily, it was like the intention I said this was, 
because maybe you'll be engineers one day. And But also, this is the kind of stuff that your dad and I liked when we were your age. And I thought that that was the reason behind giving it to you. Uh, and so it's like, cool, we're going to catch up. We're going to catch up with mum and dad. And mum offered to cook, which is nice. I am an awful cook. And then they go around and it's someone's house. It's under the restaurant so they can run around and they can do things. And then here's like the present and here's the reason why this present means something to me. It's not just like, oh, I'll give you a present because like then you know, you'll like me more than not present or something. Like to me, a present should have some sort of meaning, I, I hope. Um, and yeah, so to me, you should be building, um, hopefully, healthy relationships and you need to invest in them. Um, otherwise, I'm not sure that you can expect them to be healthy. And I think sort of similar at work, um, it can't just all be doing stuff. You need to have some time. They say friendships are do, um, built from doing nothing together, not something together. Um, and that you do a lot of nothing when you're at, you know, school and at university. But then when you go to work, you don't necessarily do nothing. You're always doing something, you know, work, work, work. And so you should be spending some systematic time to do nothing with people at work. Not anywhere near, like, I don't know, there's not much time, like, with my friends outside that I'm doing something. Uh, maybe having a discussion, but at work, like, you should be doing, I don't know, once a quarter minimum, <laughs> you know, something that is nothing. Um, and that can really build an, an incredible amount of relationship capital. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. Do, do you guys, like, how do you build in that time for doing nothing to create those stronger connections? Uh, I mean, sometimes it's just one-on-ones with the people that you talk with closely. You know, you have company, um, you know, we had a quarterly last um, Friday, um, so everyone gets together and, you know, kind of puts on drinks and they're sort of monthlies, and then you should have sort of a smaller team, like drinks slash dinner or whatever, um, you know, do team building sort of things or whatever. Um, and so to me, um, those things are important. Um, and can you know so I don't know, a friend of my brother's um we we all went go-karting 15 years ago or something i, f I had forgotten this um and he he told me that i won <laughs> and I'm like, I, I would have liked to remember that but anyway whatever um and he's like i'm gonna organize go-karting again and it was fun you know and we just you know hang out and you know it's, it's sort of like i don't know i, I can't remember the last time i went go-karting like Years ago, I don't know. I don't recall. It's not something that is something that I do on a frequent basis. But it was just nice, um, and it was very well done. That person, I was like very appreciative of them taking the time to organise this and to get things to happen. Yeah. So if it's something like go karting, it's kind of spontaneous. What do you think about those more orchestrated, uh, connected activities that kind of those things that I suppose sometimes people cringe at from HR? Are you pro against thoughts? Yeah, there's that article, um, I found it on the New York Times, it was probably about 10 years old, it's like the 38 questions to fall in love or whatever. Um, and you go through them, I don't know if you've read them and done them with people, but you can spend a unit of time with somebody and not get to know them at all, or you can spend a unit of time and kind of see their soul, this whole thing, right? Um, and so to me, good ones are able to allow people to connect and share at a deeper level than they otherwise would have. Some of them are forced and strained and it doesn't work at all. Um, and so to me, team building activities can be good or bad, just like anything, um, but do the good ones. <laughs> it also partially has to do with your, you know, headspace and approach coming into it. If you're like, F this, going to be crap, I don't want to do it, then that's probably not going to mean you're going to get a good outcome. But if you are like, yeah, you know, open mind, let's give it a try and see what happens here. That's a really good point, actually. Like if everyone's got a good attitude, as soon as one person starts like taking the piss, that everyone else kind of follows suit. So yeah, I guess attitude is kind of everything yeah i think it's a big part of it. like your energy and is one part of defines your attitude like if i'm rinsed and there's no energy in the tank then i'm not going to be good company um and so to me uh or moff said this you know there are good days there are bad days and there are fridays 
Um, and so you had a bad week, Friday is the best day. You have a good week, Friday is the best day. Just let your hair down, have some fun, you know, do some things. Um, but then, like, often, like, I won't speak to anybody over the whole weekend. Um, now there's some things, you know, like, so it was for a while. I was like, from Friday night until Monday morning, no speaking, no, no even texting. Like, people will text you, I'll text you back on Monday. Um, and it's just a headspace. So you kind of get some quiet. Um, and then you're like back to the like crazy intenseness of the, the, the work can be, you know, on Monday. So, yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you that before, actually. Do you have like when you're trying to bring energy up and out of yourself, do you have like a pep talk you give yourself or a ritual or what do you do when you've got no energy, but you know you need to generate energy? I had work. I think you should try to be whatever is optimal for that circumstance. So if you need to be in listening mode or if you need to be in, you know, giving someone a hard, you know, talk, you need to lift mode and you try to figure out what the kind of energy or approach or mindset is that is going to opt be optimal for that. Um, but we had the quarterly um, and I think if you're not excited about something, you shouldn't expect anybody else to be. And to me, if you're not building things that you're, you're not excited about, then why are you building it, right? Um, and so I'd like to think that we build some exciting stuff. And so it is like, you know, Friday afternoon, it's been a long week, I'm tired, um, but, you know, this is the kind of energy you want to do. And so the Maya Angelou thing, they will not remember what you said, they will not remember what you did, but they will remember how you made them feel. And so the goal for me from that you know, speech to the company was to make people feel excited and motivated about things. Um, and a couple of people afterwards said that they were very motivated and they felt it was exciting. So I was like, job done. And then I got up to about 7.30 or something. And then I'm like, I'm rinsed. <laughs> um, we started you know, drinks at 4.30, I think. And so it was nice. You had a good chat with a bunch of people. And then after that, I just went home, ordered the pizza, did my house, and got through about three quarters of it, and then woke up on the couch at like 1 a.m. in the morning. I'm like, oh, you slob. Have a shower, get in the bed. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So I suppose it kind of comes back to that North Star, like that internal motivation. You've got to believe in the project, which is why it's got to be something that's purpose driven. And then you can generate that energy, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think, as I said, it's people's job to maintain self motivation 80 to 90% of the time. Um, and myself included but i think also you know this can be i don't know 10 times at a time where i'm trying to give others motivation i'm like yeah, this is exciting we're doing cool stuff you should you know think you know and look forward to this um so yeah um it's part of this it's like i also find like you can at times if you want to and you shouldn't always generate a certain type of energy if you want to like i don't know if, if it's your favorite tv show I'll be, you know, rinse and grumpy and then you watch an episode and by the end, it's like meditation on steroids. Everything's gone, you're smiling, you're laughing, you know, you're like, oh God, I'm going to run out of episodes of this TV show, you know, awful. Um, uh, and so to me, um, you know, there are things, it was also like, I don't know, your, your best friend, you're in a bad mood, you catch up with them, you're in a good mood, right? A person that you really don't like, you're in a good mood, you're, oh God, I have to catch up with this person, you get into a bad mood or whatever, right? Um, and so we used to call this emotional energy exchange initiative. Um, and so that you can and are able to exchange energy or to generate energy. And they say that emotional contagion is a thing and there's a lot of uh, studies around this. So like, I don't know, positive people or, you know, uplifting people and also negative people, you know, do this. And so another one I talked about earlier, like we don't just want low fuss people, we want no fuss people. And some people, everything is a fuss. Um, and sure, that might be helpful in certain parts of life and that might be you want to operate. But like at work for me, no fuss people. Like, we just need to get on with it. No fuss, please. 
That's interesting, actually. What do you think is like, have you seen a big transformation like with someone in terms of motivation where you've given them a frame, an excited frame, and they've actually been able to latch onto that and change their attitude around at the workplace? Or what transformations have you seen in that regard? Look, often when people get into a really negative place, the best path forward for all parties concerned is that they're not necessarily around. And that can happen for many reasons, internal reasons, external reasons, whatever else it is, right? Um, and so to me, um, I don't know, like, you know, in society we, we pay taxes, et cetera, and, and the state should be here so that they're helping in certain ways, but it's not your responsibility to help for everyone in everything. Uh, there should be certain people, like a blood family or friend family, that you would bleed for, right? Um, but you can't do that for everybody. Um, and hopefully there's some sort of reciprocity here. So I don't know, you might consider these people like, you know, friend family, but they're like uh, that annoying Duncan, like, you know, I can't wait till he leaves or whatever else it is, right? Um, and, and so, yeah, um, for better or worse, if things get really bad at work, normally the best path forward is for them to leave. Um, but often like, there's been a slow moving train wreck to get there. It doesn't like this one day, it's all good. And the next day it's all bad. It's mm. good, you know, slow de degradation. Um, and you try and sometimes at a certain point you've thrown good money after bad and it's time to stop throwing money at this, you know, from a metaphorical perspective, you know, money is a euphemism for time and you know, energy, et cetera. Um, so, yeah. Do you think, and I don't know if this can be quantified, do you think that there's like positive or negative energies more contagious? Um, negative energy. So that, that has been quantified by the emotional contagion things. Um, so the whole Steve Jobs quote, it's better to have a hole in your team than an asshole. Um, <laughs> so to me, yeah, negative energy is more contagious than positive energy. And they say the reason for this is like a survival mechanism. If stuff's bad or whatever else it is, um, you know, you're like, I don't know, you're being attacked as a tribe. Everyone freak out real quick and get things. Uh, so yes, negative energy is apparently five times more contagious than positive energy from the studies that I have seen. Um, so yeah, but then also different people are more influential at work than others. So all else equal, normally more senior people are more influential than more junior people or whatever else it is. But it's not always the case. Um, but yes, um, so to me, um, try to be good energy. <laughs> try to have a positive outlook. It doesn't mean things are good, but we are going to find a way to make this work. And we've got a plan and the plan is hopefully going to make a progress. And if anyone's got a ways to make the plan better, talk now. You know? <laughs> There's no reason to do a bad plan. That's, that's you know, the, the definition of insanity or whatever. So yeah. Yeah, I like that. That makes a lot of sense. And once you give people that frame, like, are they generally empowered by it? Like, how long does it, it take depends, people okay. to get into that? Yeah, sorry. Some people are like, well, to me, you're like, we are on the same team. Like, you know, mm -hmm. it's not like if I win, you know, it's at the expense of you. We all win, you know, or, you know, we're not all, you know, sort of winning. So to me, there's, there's no, like, incentive for me not to be having you have a good time and, and vice versa. Um, and so to me, normally people come in, like, I don't know, some of them are really like, you know, super excited and others are kind of like, oh yeah. And then you, you build the right thing, but also you, you want different people um, with different types of, um, you know, modes. So as an example, this is just one lens and this is an oversimplification. Let's just say there's two kinds of people. People that care deeply about work and really want to drive and really want to grow, like big time, right? And others that like work, but are happy to just chill more. And they're happy doing a very similar job in a year from today, knowing what they need to do, you know, not necessarily um, needing to, you know, pull bigger hours or solve bigger problems. But there are other people that if you don't give them something new, they're bored out of their mind and it doesn't matter what it was before. 
And I suppose I'm probably more of the person that was wanting to push myself, was wanting to grow. Um, but not everyone needs to be that. A place for everything and everything in its place. Um, and I suppose I empathize more with the people that wanted more and new in other things. And so I would say that companies almost always need both types of people. But you've got to have those people in the right place, um, you know, in the right thing. So I've seen people that like they want more and I'm like, I don't know there is more to be able to give you right now. And so your hunger for new and push is fantastic and admirable, but not something that we're going to necessarily be able to help with or work with now. Um, and so I would say as an example that I might have fit into those buckets, like, I don't know, I started off at Google very bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and things, and by the end I was like bored AF. Um, but I also had started a business on the side called Rollo, and it was coming along and I was wildly more excited and energized about trying to make that make progress than I was. Um, now, now I, you know, hope to believe that I was adding value and I was, you know, an important small cog in a big machine, but I wasn't really super energized by that by the end. And so I think that the right thing for me was to leave. Um, and, you know, even, so they were kind and offering, you know, other things. Um, but I suppose versus doing it rollo that there wasn't anywhere near as appealing well that came to an abrupt end um i think maybe internet dropped out on jess's side um and that probably is a time that we should stop this here anyways <laughs>